0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Man, we got a dynamite show planned for you. You know, over the last three years, tons of controversy about the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, etc. Well, Carol Roth has been in the financial business all her adult life. She heard about this, you will own nothing. And she said, wait a second, that's got to be a conspiracy theory. Well, she did a ton of research and said, no, it's not. She's going to be with me. She's the author of the new book, You Will Own Nothing. Uh, Plus, I've got Ryan Irvine. Ryan's been a terrific stock picker for our audience over a huge number of years with uh, Keystone Financial. But here's a specific that I wanted him to deal with that they are. I wanted him to come and explain to him. They've got a new report coming out called Electrification and the opportunities there. Well, that's a theme that we've been having on Money Talks, and you can go renewable, go EV, but come on we got a huge problem with the electrical grid and that whole system. He's talking about what stocks you can take advantage of it. Plus, of course, we've got Aussie, we've got Victor. uh, I've got Rob Levy talking about the number one issue facing our economic future that no one seems to be talking about. But first, one of the hallmarks of the last decade has been the increasing prevalence of the no questions allowed attitude. And it's a growing number of issues in Canada. You know, for all the talk uh, we're following the science that we heard over the last three years in COVID, the no questions allowed has got to be the antithesis of the scientific method. As Einstein said, never stop asking questions. Obviously, when it comes to an increasing number of aspects of the progressive agenda, many in government, academia, media, establishment, well, they oppose that. But what's widely underappreciated, misunderstood, is it comes at a cost. Now, I'm not going to delve into the motivations or the arrogance that underpins the attitude, but I want to point out the consequences, or maybe better put, the guaranteed unintended negative consequences. And I'm going to illustrate with just, you now. give me a couple of questions here. When the 20 countries, including Canada, signed the Glasgow Agreement at COP26, what that did is said that Western governments would no longer finance any fossil fuel-related projects in Africa. You know, keep in mind, two out of every three people in Africa You know, something like 621 million don't have even access to electricity. Hundreds of millions more live in extreme energy poverty. So do you think those signatories considered that they were opening the door to further Chinese influence in Africa? I mean, they were already investing billions in energy infrastructure, but now Glasgow agreement says they're going to have no competition. China will be the only game in town with the potential for much greater influence. Now, I can't imagine that was the goal. And my bet is they didn't even think about it, but that's the reality. Another question. Do you think that when climate activists opposed the all natural gas development, they opposed uh, natural gas production, they understood that they were pushing the price of fertilizer ingredients like ammonia and urea higher, which pushed the price of natri- nitrogen-based fertilizer to records last year. But the point is out of the reach for many farmers in the develop- developing world. Was it the goal? Of the no-fossil-fuels climate agenda to reduce crop yields, pushing tens of million people to the edge of starvation? Well, I sure as heck hope not, but that's been the result. One more. When renewable energy advocates push for the shutdown of nuclear power, how in the world did they not recognize they would need the backup power to replace what they just lost by shutting down nuclear? And when they push to replace fossil fuels with renewables, They clearly didn't plan for the backup power needed because the sun didn't shine and the wind doesn't blow all the time. And look at the unintended consequences, though. Despite warnings like President Obama, President Trump, both said, hey, don't rely on Russia to Germany. Well, the unintended consequence has been Germany basically financed the Ukraine invasion. When sanctions were put on Russian oil and gas, did anyone consider that that would result in coal demand skyrocketing to where it's now the leading source of energy in Germany? How that happened is beyond me. Now, some would say it's stupidity, others, ideological madness. Well, the kindest thing I can say is that they didn't think about the consequences. And that's my point. The self-described agenda of the progressives is a nonstop parade of unintended consequences. And I just gave you a few examples. Believe me, I can go on and on because there's many more and the no questions allowed attitude, and you see it permeating public discussion, including public education, many parts of the media when it comes to the progressive agenda, that's at the heart of the problem. If instead questions and critical analysis were invited, some of these consequences would have been avoided. They would have been clear. Even now we refuse to critically evaluate the effectiveness, for example, of aspects of the pandemic response lockdowns, school closures, vaccine mandates. Questioning the government narrative was not welcome. So it begs the uncomfortable questions. If instead the government and medical establishment had invited questions and critical evaluation from experts, how many tens of billions lost in economic activity would have been avoided? What about the increase in suicides, opioid deaths, the damage to children's development? Some individuals' mental health could have been avoided, I think, by encouraging the critical questioning by experts who disagreed. Instead, we attacked them. No questions allowed us arguably the most reactionary attitude since the dawn of the enlightenment. It is the antithesis of progress. It prevents innovation. And who benefits? Well, as always, it's the status quo power groups, certainly not the public. And my point, It comes with very real consequences and costs. Unfortunately, the decision makers are not the ones who pay. And until that attitude changes, we can expect a continued parade of what's called unintended consequences. Gosh, I'm thinking back to, I guess it's about three years ago, right around now, this kind of period, you started hearing something called the Great Reset. I think it started uh, up in British Columbia, had the leader of the Green Party, Elizabeth May, saying COVID was an opportunity for a reset. But, of course, it went much deeper than that. Uh, We had uh, a book written by Klaus Schwab. Uh, We had Prince, at that time, Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, down there talking at the World Economic Forum, but all of that. And so much of it was treated like, hey, this is a conspiracy. And yet it's dominated so much of what we've got when we talk about global politics at this point, and it's having a direct impact on your own financial well-being. That's why I was excited when I read that Carol Roth is putting out a book. She's got years of experience in the financial services sector, but the book is entitled You Will Own Nothing. Gosh, that's got to be familiar to anybody who's followed this story. You will owe nothing. Your war with a new financial world order and how to fight back. Carol joins me uh, right now. Carol, first of all, I do appreciate you finding time with this. It's exciting. The book gets released. uh, Pre-orders right now on Amazon, and it's doing well there. Five-star reviews, but it's going to be released on July 18th. So this is incredibly timely. So, first of all, thank you for taking the time with us when you've got this sort of busy book launch time going.
1: No, it's my my pleasure. This is such an important topic. And uh, I always joke, you know, people think that people get wealthy writing books. I promise you we don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not the best return on investment. I should probably take my own advice. But the information was so important that it was really um, a critical endeavor to get that information out there to empower people with the knowledge about what's going on and really give them the road bets to, to fight back. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to chat with you about it.
0: Well, let's start with where you started from, which I've read that you didn't really believe this, you know, when you started to read some of the aspects. I mean, I would say you were a doubter. You said, I think this is a bit of a conspiracy. And that was the mainstream response. I mean, that's what people thought. But how did you come overcome that? How did you come to think, hey, wait a second, this is real?
1: So it actually didn't take as much research as one might think, Mike. You know, you see this you'll owe nothing, you'll be happy associated with the World Economic Forum, which is littered with the global business and political elite. And I'm like, well, it's on social media. There's no way that this group is is predicting the end of private property. That's ridiculous. Because as you know, and I know we come from the financial services background, you've got ownership equals wealth that's how people get wealthy so the implications that you wouldn't be able to have assets that could retain or appreciate in value had severe implications so i just decided to do a little research and it did not take very much time to see yes in fact the number one prediction from a video that's by the way still up on their twitter account The number one prediction they had in their top predictions for 2030 is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy and i thought it was staggering on both sides of that because people focus on the you'll own nothing part of that um you know which rightfully they should but the you'll be happy part almost is like we need you to buy into this we need for you to think that this is for your good and for your convenience and it's such an amazing thing because we all know throughout history the people who haven't had property have been very unfree and very unhappy if they even live so they need to kind of change the the narrative so to speak on that and then when you go back and you do just a little bit more research you'll find out that this is an idea that has been repurposed and repackaged by the WEF. And that's one thing um, that they do. In fact, Klaus Schwab is potentially the most persistent person in the entire universe. He has been touting this idea of stakeholders or stakeholder quote unquote capitalism since 1971. So what they do is if the idea doesn't catch on, they just change it around. So this video that went out that got the attention actually had been in an article format before that, where some woman was sort of hypothesizing about how great it would be to not own anything. And then there was another article that they have that you could maybe have like everything in your life be like a library system where you could just somehow borrow it, it would just magically mm-hmm. appear. So just doing a very limited amount of research makes you go, okay, this is happening. And then as I started thinking about all the issues that people were contending with what we went through with COVID, social credits, central bank, digital currencies, ESG, down in the United States, we have Wall Street competing for home ownership um, and, and issues with college and young people not being able to, to get wealth. I started thinking about all these things and going, how are they connected? And just one day I'm, I'm walking and it just hit me like a lightning bolt. You will own nothing. And it really became through line. And the more that I dug into it, the more I kept seeing the same names and the same players popping up over and over again. And as somebody who has not been very conspiratorial in my life, although now I would say it probably a little bit more than, than before, when things pop up a couple of times, you go, well, you know, that might just be coincidence. When you're starting to see it like a half a dozen or more times and you have to kind of rule out that it's a coincidence, then it becomes a trend
0: well and you know it's uh, one of my things it's not like klaus schwab was hiding it he as i say he put out the book <laughs> "Covid: the great reset but he also had a you know as i said with uh, future king charles uh, they did a little bit there then they had their i think it was in january of 21 that was the name of their conference as you say it's still up on the website now it's it's others who sort of looked at that uh, in disbelief. And and one of the things that, you know, it comes right down to the core if you're talking, and there is a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment there, but you talk capitalism, when you're talking ownership. I mean, one of the distinctions, be- why I, I did uh, graduate work and why some countries develop and other countries don't. Yeah. Well, right at the essence of that is private property rights, you know, uh, and... We have seen that play out, of course. I mean, it's a long time since I was in graduate school. Look at me, but you know, but uh, you know, you see how it plays out. And I, I mean, we're talking about right to the fundamentals of uh, capitalism and freedom.
1: So think about just the word that I said. As Klaus Schwab has been pushing this since 1971. Stakeholder instead of shareholder if you're a shareholder you have an ownership stake you've put something whether it's your time or your money to have some skin in the game and to have that ability for something to appreciate and value a stakeholder is just anyone who's you know anybody who's not affiliated with the company who says i'm a stakeholder i'm important i'm in your community i'm a business person i'm whoever i'm a quote-unquote stakeholder they are just from the beginning shifting that idea away from the concept of ownership to the concept of of stakeholders. And I do think it it is important to see how things have shifted over time. You know, it used to be that property was passed down in a very vertical manner, that if you were somebody who came from a noble family, a wealthy family, uh, you could, as a heir, male heir, usually inherit that wealth. And that was it. But it wasn't until there was private property rights and protections, I mean, we've always had the rights, but that they were actually protected, that we had the ability along with technology to say, okay, I'm going to make the investment and I'm going to do things. And then we're going to be able to trade if I have something that I want and you have something you want, Mike, and we can trade and have that protected. And that has brought to the world incredible prosperity, not just here in North America, but really on a global basis. And so we're seeing this movement and the shift away from that concept, and getting people to buy into it as a good idea. It's one thing if you want to do it voluntarily, you want to live a a, a you know a stuff free life cycle. That that's fine. But to have that push from a central planning directive standpoint is a very scary proposition, and something that should raise everybody's antennas.
0: I'm thinking in terms of. Uh individual uh, progress that they've made on this front. I mean, we had one of the things I noted, uh, again, back in 2020, I think it was in in early July when Joe Biden says their democratic slogan is build back better. In Canada, shockingly, uh, the Liberal Party adopted that precise slogan then we saw it go into Europe. And so, I mean, that was unusual in and of itself. If you think there's some sort of general agenda, I think that would give you a good hint at that. But Build Back, where are we at on this right now? I mean, I'm seeing all sorts of things are, uh, when they talk about uh, you know the shared economy, for example, government restricting freedoms, for example. Uh, they seem to be making progress, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is also somewhat conspiratorial in theory, but not really, that I think underpins what we're talking about is this concept of a new financial world order or a new world order, and that you know sounds like way off the charts. Like, what are you talking Mm -hmm. about? Um, It's very much based in history. Right now, you know, the, the U.S. has been at the center of the global financial economy for about 80 years. But before us, it was the British. And before the British, it was the Dutch. And so these things do go in cycles. And if you're a student of history, you can see that we are at least sort of late stage in the cycle. At the same time, you have people like President Biden, who's talking about this openly, There is a group in the United States called the Business Roundtable, which is the CEOs of all the major U.S. corporations. And they get together to talk about ideas and enact policy ideas and reforms and whatever. And uh, he had a a speech with them on March 21st of 2022. You can find this on the White House's website where he says there is a change that happens about every three to four generations. There's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it. So this this is not something, again, like you said with Klaus Schwab publishing the book, that this is like a hidden thing. It's really history repeating. And then the people who are the most elite in the world recognizing it and figuring out what they they want to do. And that's where where I kind of go with this is why is this happening? If you're elite and well-connected, you hold power, you hold money, all of this, you know, you know that that stakes are shifting financially. Are you going to just sort of let this all play out and hope that it works out for you and your buddies? Or are you proactively going to try to make sure that it does work out for you? And I don't know, Mike, what do you think's going to happen there?
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're on our side pushing real hard, by the way. Yeah, right. And there's so many examples of that progress, though. I mean, I'm sorry, surprised when you see Major Walfrey, you mentioned BlackRock, they come out and the amount of home ownership that they've got you know, right now. We know there's rental problems in major urban centers. Gosh, Canada's gonna be the poster child for that in Vancouver and Toronto. And, and again, everywhere you look, there's a squeeze on individuals.
1: I actually have a chart in the book, Um, it's not mine, I got it from the Financial Samurai that shows basically income levels in both the US and Canada and the increase in housing prices. And you guys are in much worse shape than we are here in the United States based on a whole slew of factors. In the United States, as you mentioned with BlackRock, one of the crazy trends that has happened is that there has been institutional capital that has come in and started competing with individuals for homes. And this is an outgrowth of 15 years of central bank policy that has suppressed interest rates and put a ton of money on the balance sheets and basically that inflated asset prices um, and, you know, at this point, created a lot of inflation for the average American citizen. And what happened as the asset prices increased and cheap and easy capital was available to Wall Street, they started putting it in everything and they ran out of places to put it. So this did not exist before 2010 in the United States. Now about one out of every five homes that is purchased is purchased with the intention Uh, it's purchased by a corporate owner not with the intention to flip it but with the intention to rent back the american dreams to the citizen which is crazy the other crazy thing is one of one of the uh, companies that are doing this is actually based in canada i don't know if you've heard of tricon (laughs) but tricon residential is one of the the companies I talk about in the book. So even here in the United States, we're getting capital from a a publicly traded company that happens to be based in Canada, that's now coming in and competing with Americans for single family homes. And it's really disrupted the ability for the average person to have the American dream and to have that level of ownership. And and across uh, all demographic groups here and in most places around the world, the house is the leading asset for most people's wealth. I mean, that is where the biggest store of wealth is, because if you think about it, and you'll appreciate this coming from financial services, one of the big issues in financial the financial markets is duration. You know, when stocks go up, people are happy, but when they go down, they panic, they end up selling at the wrong time you can't really do that with your house because you're consuming it. Your kids are going to school, you have a job. So even though there's shifts in the market, as, as long as you can continue to pay your mortgage or whatnot, you're not trading in and out of your homes. So you get that benefit of a long duration and that price appreciation as we have seen that the assets, you know, values being inflated, some of that by productivity, but a lot of it by central bank policy. And so taking that away from people, we have young people who are struggling, who feel like they're never going to be able to participate in that. One, because the housing prices are so high and two here in the U.S. because we also have the government locking them down with predatory uh, college loans and enriching the colleges at the same time. So from sort of every direction, we're getting this you will owe nothing thing you know, situation. You've got the government and the central banks that are making it harder for you to retain wealth. You've got these bad actors and you know the WEF, the UN, other big businesses that are making it, it harder. And then you've also got big technology who you know a handful of companies that are sort of acting as de facto governments in and of themselves that are basically renting your life back to you as a service, or in some cases, you know, helping with government interference. You know, one of the things is the Freedom Convoy in Canada. You know, the fact that that they were raising money on a U.S. platform and the Canadian government came to them and said, "Shut it down and shut down those those donations" is staggering. Uh,
0: and the book is called. I want to remind people: you will own nothing. Your war with a fin- new financial world order. And one of the things I said is unique is you talk about, and obviously we can't do justice to that here. That's why you write a book and all the work that goes into it. <laughs> right. But I wanted to give people flavors of what, why they should go out and have a look because uh, there is a new financial world order. And the other side is how do you actually fight back? How do you protect yourself here? Can you give me just a couple of samples of uh, the challenge we're facing and maybe one or two of the things that we might want to keep in mind in, in uh, protecting ourselves?
1: Yeah. So this is um, one of the things I wanted to do in the book Uh, here in the United States. One of the um, elements or or forms that you can go through in terms of bankruptcy is a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So Chapter 11 usually means that I took my Chapter 11 and flipped it on its head. And it's all about how you can protect yourself and try to own everything. So that's a little Mm -hmm. Easter egg for you. But you really have to understand all of these different forces because you're going to do something different depending on what the issue is so one of the areas I talk about is central bank digital currencies and this is something that central banks around the world the g7 which we're both part of um, has put out their principles for retail facing CBdc's you don't do this is this is not something that you're familiar with so imagine that you're out and you have you know, some level of cash and you're going out to spend that imagine there's a microchip in that and all of a sudden the government could track every single transaction down to the dollar and if they didn't want you to spend it because maybe you ate too many burgers that month and you know meat's bad for the environment they decided they could shut that down i mean that's what the technology and the control would would do it would really fully centralize the money within the hands of the governments and central banks that issue that. so for something like that you have to say okay so if i go out and i earn my money and they want that all to go into a cbdc format where else can i put that in not only from an investment standpoint but also from a medium of exchange trade standpoint to get my food because I do want a burger, to make sure that I get the medicines that I need, to make sure that you know I make those investments. And so it's retraining yourself to not depend so much on cash in the form that it is, and to think about things like precious metals, to put more money into homes, and perhaps it's not in the neighborhood you're in now, but maybe in a one that's a little bit more suppressed, to, to look at other ways that you can make sure that you're preserving not only that value, because we know the governments are overspending and, and taking away our purchasing power, but also just to be able to have some medium of exchange or maybe some barter system that is outside of the normal um, scenario where the central banks and the governments can interfere with, and I know again that sounds a little preppery or whatnot, but these are real things that are going on. And the analogy I like to use is that if your house is on fire, it's a really bad time to to have an escape plan that you're just trying to figure out and to try and buy insurance. You want to mm-hmm. come up with that that plan and that you know that protection and hope you never have to use it. But you don't want to be thinking about it in that moment. And so that's a lot of these things. We don't we don't know the duration. This could be 12 months, 12 years, 50 years. And there are a lot of different form factors that it could take. But when something does shift, are you going to be staring going, I didn't do anything to prepare for this. What am I going to do? Or do you say, yeah, you know, I put some money into some tangible physical assets, you know, things like a some coins that I could hold so I can at least in an interim period while there's this chaos and this is all getting sorted out that I have the ability to continue to live my life. Did I get myself a house for, you know, there's hyperinflation, you know, my assets, my stocks, all these things are going to go up, but that cash is going to be worthless. So it's, it's really rethinking your approach to sort of your entire financial portfolio.
0: I think your point's so well taken. You don't wait until the boat's uh, sinking to figure out whether you've got a life jacket. Right. And that's my, that's my thing all along. When you look at the pace of these changes that we're experiencing, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're just measuring on a stock or what have you, you just see the rate of change is amazing. And I just think one has to set back. I mean, one of our big themes here on Money Talks is uh, I'll give you a choice. In five years time, do you want to own that pile of paper, that paper currency, or do you right. want to own, it might be oil, wheat, Gold, you know, that kind of thing stuff, in other words, because, I mean, it's clear that they've been devaluing the purchasing power in an aggressive way. I mean, well over 120 countries are already in deep, deep trouble. But I think it's naive to think it's not coming here. And and further to your point about digital currency, that's what I find is most on people's minds because the ability uh, for surveillance, for monitoring everything you do. Yeah. I can go back to Al Gore in November. Uh, sorry, the Glasgow Uh, COP26 conference, and he literally said, we're going to have the ability to track everything you do, literally. Well, and then there's going to be punishments or rewards and all of this kind of stuff. I guess my point is, and that's why it's so good to have your book sort of encompass this, is it's already well underway.
1: I mean, it is. And if you go back to what happened during COVID, you know, there there already was this very informal social credit system that rewarded and punished you, depending on who you were and what you did and how you acted. So if you think about there's sort of different ways that you can amass uh, income and then eventually put that to work for you for wealth. One of them is through your social standing. If you have good social standing, you've you have opportunities that come to you. Well, if you didn't take the vaccine, you might not have been able to go to a restaurant or you were called names on social media or people you know, didn't want to deal with you in certain areas. You actually lost your job. You, you lost the source of income, the direct source of income. And then, you know, in terms of actually taking away your assets, they shut down specific businesses, some, not all. And like we saw with the Freedom Convoy, they took those actual donations away from them. So you're seeing already this tie between social credit and the financial implications, the digitization, the the ability to do it at scale, particularly with a currency just takes it to a different level that we've never seen before. And there are so many different entry points to be able to do this and get people's buy in. So think about the inflation that we're experiencing. The Fed could say, listen, are you sick of inflation? We have a tool that can do this. But in order to do this, you know, we need to, to have this the central bank digital currency so people buy in and when they want to destroy demand, they've literally shut off people's spending power. Like you cannot access those dollars. So that is a potential way in uh, a devaluation scheme like they, they did here in terms of stimulus checks in the United States. Hey, I'll give you 10 digital Canadian dollars or 10 digital U.S. dollars for everyone you turn in. People who are not financially literate will think that they're going to be rich because of that and not understand the the purchasing power devaluation that comes along with that. So there are a lot of different entry points that we've already seen people being susceptible to. They sort of did a dry run with COVID on some of these in a very light way. And. I have to say, Mike, I don't know if you're in the same camp, but like 10 years ago, if you would have told me this scenario, I probably would have still been kind of skeptical and go, yeah, I don't know. But having lived through what we did over the last three years, I can no longer be skeptical.
0: Well, uh, regular listeners to the program know I can jump on the hobby horse of free speech (laughs) at any moment because I look historically. I mean, it has never worked out to see censorship. I mean, it's one of the distinctions between uh, how do you get progress without questioning things. And, you know, uh, I talk about that all the time. But when you look at the encroaching censorship here, you know, that, uh, you know, we have what's called Bill C-11, you know, which the the point was to have government be able to have the last resort of censoring what goes on social media. But that was about their third try at it, by the way. I mean, it wasn't like they got rejected in Bill C-10 and then said, ah, well, forget about it. No. They, they, they couldn't get it back on the sort of order board fast enough. And I, I just think, again, it's this evidence that is supporting everything. And, and, and your book does a great job in bringing all of these different areas because it is all-encompassing there. Uh, just before I let you go, can I, can I come back to that social credit concept just for Absolutely. people? I think it's so key because we experienced it in COVID, so it's not a case of I can't believe that will happen.
1: It's very true. We did experience it. And this was on a very non formalized basis. If you look at China, they have one in place that is much more formalized. It's actually not as formalized in some ways, as I think some of the people think it is, because it's different on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So some of them use number grades, some of them use letter grades, and they actually pick the sort of punishments and rewards and what's good and bad based on the needs of that jurisdiction, which just goes to show how malleable this is and how it's at the whim of the central planners. But one of the stories that I share in the book, that's just blows your mind. It's from NPR. So again, very well sourced. Mm-hmm. This is not, this is not like a conspiratorial leaning yeah. arena. And it's about a gentleman named Lao Duan and Lao Duan was a coal intermediary. He would buy store and sell coal. Well, The Chinese government changed their policy on coal and completely upended his business overnight and he could no longer pay for anything. So he was put on the country's blacklist because of the changes that the government made. So he wanted to be able to travel and they said, no, I'm sorry. So they take away your travel. Then he's going with this this person from NPR and they go into town and they look up and there's an electronic billboard and he sees his face on the electronic billboard and it's got his name and his identification number and it says this is an untrustworthy person and it cycles through a bunch of people and he tells the 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 npr journalist oh i recognize a lot of the people these are a lot of the people from the coal industry that had the same issue as me so this is right out of a george orwell novel and to think that that can't be transported here to the united states or to canada is foolhardy because we saw the picking of winners and losers and these mandates, not based on science, but based on central planning whims.
0: Yeah, it's, I, I, by the way, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, man, this book's going to be unpopular with all the right people.
1: yeah it's, it's one of those I wanted to do a trailer and I was told by my publisher that I couldn't but I wanted to do a trailer of like here are all the entities who really don't want you to, to read yeah. this book and it's you know the central banks the WEF, the UN Justin Trudeau Joe Biden you know BlackRock like basically everybody who's you know on the wrong side of everything and they're not going to be happy um, with this book but that's the intention the intention is to empower people with the knowledge of what's going on and not let them sell it to you as you being happy and not let them get away with what they're doing and give you that plan to fight back.
0: Well, let me remind everyone that you can order it right now on Amazon. Release date is July 18th. So we're right there. So you will own nothing. Your war with a new financial world order and how to fight back. Carol Roth. Carol, thanks so much for finding time for us.
1: Yes, thanks so much. You know, the elites want you to own nothing, but I want you to own everything. So I appreciate this discussion, Mike, and what you're doing um, to help people navigate this.
0: One of the things I've noticed over the last few weeks is a lot of talk about the economy. Well, you might say that's not a surprise, but this is all coming from the government. They talked about a Bloomberg article and a Washington Post article that said, aren't we doing great? 1 million uh, newcomers last year, which, of course, Ozzy and I chronicled every week for ages saying, well, good news for the economy because you're going to improve GDP, but not GDP per capita. That's the key component. But it will also uh, create problems. We haven't answered our housing problems, our health care problems. I mean, it's it's more nuanced than simply making statements like that. But the big one that worries me as I watch these conversations take place Without any reference to productivity, without any reference to capital investment. Those are the foundations of your economy going forward, your standard of living. I want to bring Rob Levy in right now, and you can find Rob at bordergold.com. Rob, you look at all of this stuff here, and uh, I mean, I've just noticed that there's basically very little talk about productivity over the last several years Maybe a little bit coming to the forefront now, but I can't think of more key component to what my standard of living is going to be, or what my children's uh,
2: grandchildren's standard of living is going to be. Absolutely right, Mike. When you drill down in on it, and you start to talk about the economy broadly and how the Canadian economy is performing, looking at a measure such as productivity gives you a little bit of a deeper dive and. Granted, it's sometimes more of a challenging one to look at month in, month out, or quarter in, quarter out, because it's kind of slow moving, doesn't tell a broader picture. But, you know, some economists, courtesy of University of Calgary economist Trevor Toom, bringing some of these stats to the forefront, showing Canadian productivity, which is measured quarterly by StatsCan, down 2% since the beginning of the year. It's down four consecutive quarters in a row. It's lowest level since fourth quarter of 2017. And for one more, it's down 10 of the last 11 quarters. So when you talk about, as you drill down into our standard of living, uh, GDP. Uh, Per capita, looking at, you know, you talk about these Bloomberg articles and immigration and all these newcomers to Canada, but the size of the economy relative to the population or the individual, it it doesn't tell much better of a story than places like the United States uh, for this exact reason, because we struggle on the productivity front, how much we get out of each unit of labor.
0: Um, My worry is when people hear things like productivity or when they look at a capital investment, there's sort of eyes roll. There's more important things or more compelling things in their lives. And that's why I think uh, economists maybe could help a little bit more in explaining what we're really talking about. And we're just saying simply, you put an American worker in a job, you put a Canadian worker in a job, and of course these are averages, the American's going to produce a lot more stuff. You know, well, obviously that's going to relate to their standard of living in the end. And that's what we're talking. I mean, there's no excuse for Canadians to produce less on a per hour basis, for example, or a Canadian worker to be less productive over time. And yet that's exactly what's happening. Now, there are reasons, by the way. I just meant you don't start as a Canadian going, yeah, we're a bit of a loser, uh, so we really can't keep up with those Americans, you know. (laughs) And then you read stuff like you look at productivity and Ontario is the same per capita as Alabama, you know, I mean, there's just no excuse. And, and again, I just want to link as you were saying, Rob, you want to talk about your children's standard of living, this is where it lives. So again, one of those economic terms, maybe people roll their eyes, maybe they stop listening, man, I can't think of anything more important than checking out productivity and capital investment.
2: Well, it, it, exactly right. And, and for the exact example that you just said, standard of living. And, and it's been a topic that we've been drilling for the past three years because it affects us on a weekly basis. When we go to the grocery store, or we have to renew our mortgage and we face higher costs than what we see of inflation. Uh, but the point that Trevor Toome makes and the lack of advancement in Canadian productivity, if we'd have kept pace with the United States... Uh, we would have $5,500 more per capita, so per individual in terms of output. He says that's a bigger problem than inflation because you look at what the average individual faces and higher costs. I mean, if we actually invested, took this issue seriously of investing in our economy and giving the Canadian worker the ability to produce more because of the investments that we make, say, in capital or intellectual property, I mean, that, that then would put us above inflation. He says it's a bigger issue than inflation.
0: Yeah, and again, I said, uh, you know, the reasons, and that's that's the reason we're talking about. Is Are we buying the technology? Are we developing the technology? But it could be in other parts of equipment, anything. We invest in our workers, investing in our countries, and our country rather, and that's what's going to produce the result. But the bottom line is we've fallen apart, uh, fallen down in capital
2: investment too. Exactly right. And the, the two very much work hand in hand because you look at what's gone on in this country over the past seven, eight years in terms of regulatory policy, because there's different ways for governments to prioritize productivity, uh, whether it's investments that they weigh, whether it's, you know, put at the forefront of their decision making, whether it's easing regulatory burdens and tax policies to encourage investment. Those are all factors that can sort of come into the debate. Uh, and, and, you know, with this liberal government, particularly, they like to prioritize it by announcing big spending projects. But I think the question is, I, I mean, twofold it is is one, as a Canadian economy, what do we have to show for it? And the stats show not much because productivity doesn't keep up with the United States, despite these big investments. And perhaps, two, it crowds out private dollars. I mean, they're the ones spending all the money. So if you're a private investor, Do you look for Canada for opportunity or you're competing against the government anyway? So you divest to go to the United States where there might be more opportunity for gain.
0: I'll come back to the fundamental for me is that we don't prioritize, uh, uh, you know, economic growth. You know, and and as Ozzy and I had said for ages – having those huge uh, in-migration numbers, immigration numbers, great. That's one thing. But again, that isn't the story that needs to be told. It's productivity. It's a cost-benefit analysis. Are we welcoming capital here? And I think the answer is whatever the government's got to say, industry, individuals have said, no, we're not. You know, we have had a dismal record of capital investment. And, of course, that's going to impact your productivity. I I just hate the formula. And the thing I guess I'm coming back to, Rob, is that, The fact that I don't hear it discussed by politicos, you know, that I I see these political assessments of the economy, you know, fine, partisan politics, whatever. But I don't think it's on their radar. That worries me going forward, especially as you just alluded to going back the last several years. We haven't been on a winning scale there. I don't see until the attitude change we're going to.
2: No, exactly right. And and one more statistic to emphasize just that, and this is from the CD Howe Institute, looking at new capital investment per worker in the OECD OECD nations. And on average, they say it stands around 20,000. In Canada, it's below that at 15,000. In the U.S., it's 28,000. So, I mean, that stat right there tells you in this country, it needs to be a priority. This needs to be something that we look at. Why are we not investing in our economy on a per worker basis? And we're lagging. So, what needs to change?
0: Well, uh, again, this is a subject economists have been worried about. You mentioned CD, how they did several reports on this going back. And those are great stats. I mean, why on earth are we spending 15000 per worker when you look at it all, you know, capital investment, etc.? and it's 28000 in the States? Well, we can't win, you know, and that's why you see a reduced value of the Canadian dollar. That's why you say, hey, I'm working just as hard as the Americans, but I can't buy as much with my currency. You know, I mean, it's, it's all interrelated, but... I, I think you're. right. Those are, by the way, very depressing stats, Rob. Thanks for finishing with that. But <laughs> I, I think it just emphasizes. I hope people prioritize this going forward because, again, on behalf of your own lifestyle, but your children going forward, grandchildren, etc. This will be the key. Rob, uh, thanks for that. We've got more to talk about. This won't be the last time on this subject.
2: Nice to talk with you, Mike. Thank you.
0: Time now for the quote of the week. Maybe I should say quotes. You know, I'm always amazed, though, when I read a quote that was done generations ago, but is still incredibly relevant. Well, that brings me to Anne Rand. She wrote her masterpiece, Atlas Shrugged, in 1957. Been a bestseller ever since. I mean, tens of millions of copies. Her critique of the failure of government coercion, advocacy of the importance of the individual, of reason and capitalism, has been translated into 25 languages. What's amazing, as you're going to hear from these quotes, is that she's as pertinent today as it was 60 years ago. And it's not hard to think I'm going to give you several quotes, but it's not hard to think of examples today that support every one of them. But I'll warn you, as you can see, she's not a fan of big government, with quotes like in quotes, "The difference between a welfare state and a totalitarian state is just a matter of time." Or in quotes. There can be no compromise between freedom and government controls. To accept just a few controls is to surrender the principle of inalienable individual rights and substitute for it the principle of the government's unlimited arbitrary power, thus delivering oneself into gradual enslavement. Okay, I'm going to do a few more for you here. because I say, I just can't believe I can give examples for each one. A businessman cannot force you to buy his product. If he makes a mistake, he suffers the consequences. If he fails, he takes the losses. If a bureaucrat makes a mistake, you suffer the consequences. If he fails, he passes the loss on to you. How about this one? The smallest minority on earth is the individual. Those who deny individual rights cannot claim to be defenders of minorities. And one more so pertinent today. Inflation is not caused by the actions of private citizens, but by government, by an artificial expansion of the money supply required to support deficit spending. No private embezzlers or bank robbers in history have ever plundered people's savings on a scale comparable to the plunder perpetuated by the fiscal policies of statist governments. And finally, I think it's a quote to sum up so much of what we see today. You can ignore reality but you can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. One of my favorites always to get a chance to talk to Ryan Irvine from keystocks.com, Keystone Financial. Why? I mean, boy, Ryan and I go back a long time and we came together because I was watching this young man doing exactly the kind of analysis that I thought was uh, that I certainly appreciated had a feel for looking at what's going on on so so many levels, like the fundamental level. Is this a good business for goodness sakes? You know, is it going to be cash flow? Is it profitable? Also looking at the bigger picture, too. And Ryan, first of all, let me just say I appreciate you finding time uh, for us. And I know you guys are working in an area that I have extreme interest in and that's electrification. So this is a typical Keystone deal where you guys find an area, but that's not enough. You know, now you gotta find stocks within that area. So maybe elaborate a little bit on where you came to that idea to look at that. And specifically then what do you start looking for in stocks?
3: Yeah. And I got to say, we do go so far back that I was a young man and now I'm an old man. At least that's what my kids (laughs) tell me. Right. So but it's true. No, uh, electrification. Well, when we look at this sector, we see a massive boom there. But we got to intersect that with underlying profitability, which we see a lack of in terms of this sector. And whether you agree or disagree or not, uh, there is a massive electrification push over half of all new cars sold in the U.S., by 2023 or 2030, sorry, are expected to be electric vehicles. Uh, you see, electric demand from 2020 is expected to increase 18% by 2023, 38% demand by uh, by th- 2035. Now, to put that in context, the previous decade electricity demand was up just 5%. So, this surge in demand we see is going to put a major strain on North American electrical grid. And an aging system you see here is built on a fossil fuel system. Uh, so there is going to be some winners and losers. What we want to do is familiarize ourselves in this segment that we see a boom that could last for 10 to 15 years. So we had four analysts looking at over 400 companies. These are public companies that are loosely associated with the electrification movement. So that would be everything from EVs the battery stocks, rare earths, electrical equipment. You got electrical engineering, electrical maintenance, grid software, utilities, electrical components, materials, all of these things and more. And get a book on all of these businesses. You want to sort out the contenders from the pretenders. We look at the businesses and see if companies are actually making money. Are they growing? And they will have a well-structured balance sheet. So, you know, you've heard the well Uh, Known names in this sector like the Teslas, the Rivians, Polster. There's China-based BYD that Warren Buffett is not invested in and Fisker. These are EV car manufacturers. Um, There's a great deal of hype right now about battery storage and charging stocks. This is an area where when you look at the underlying numbers of these businesses, they fall flat from our fundamental perspective. There's a couple names that may look attractive, but most of the companies fall flat. So, as we do in many other booms, we often look at less obvious businesses that provide basic components to electrification, and that's where the value is. And we can find similar upside potential in those type of companies uh, that trade at reasonable value, valuations. And we've had a winner in that segment already that is a less obvious company uh, in Hammond Power. And, and you know th- that's a way you can play electrification, buy the company for a reasonable price, and have the uh, upside to this boom that we're seeing over the next decade.
0: And I think you're also describing the difference between someone who's sort of a momentum trader and someone who's looking for value, looking for, yes, I understand it's a three to five year hold till this, and Hammond Power, by the way, uh, I'll get to that right now, is because it's been a great example of that, where patience, as you should be as an investor, that's one of the difference between, you know, all the aspects of trading that Victor talks about all the time with us, but as an investor, which is more my, you know, emotional approach is find the quality, wait it out. But look at Hammond. I mean, I'm going back some years now, but, man, you recommended that stock at, you know, 60 cents, a dollar, four dollars, you know, all the way through. Uh, and and look at the performance. been the best performing stock, period. I mean, even as recently as, uh, you know, the World Outlook Conference, you were looking at this is going back just a year and a bit. You know, looking at under the $20 mark and, uh, you know, and yeah, it just and kept going.
3: Yeah, it's $51 today. $51 today. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we recommended it on October on your show. It was trading at $16. It's up 200% since then. It's up 615% in the last four years. And if you go back this, you, you talked about how we've been talking about stocks for years. Back in 2002, we recommended on the show at $1. fifteen. It's over $50 today. You're talking about 4,000 plus percent. That's patience. But this is the type of company that we're looking for in that electrification report. Um, They they don't provide the sexiest part of the electrification movement. They provide something called transformers. That's what they make. We're not talking about Autobots and Decepticons here. But these are devices that are used to step up power for it to travel over long distance and step it down so it can be used in a building or, for example... Tesla or Tesla's charging stations, all of them in Canada, use Hammond Power's transformers. So it's a back-end way of playing that electrification boom. Uh, we were able to buy it uh, years ago when it traded at five times earnings, then rebuy it again about four years ago when it was about six, seven times earnings. Just two years ago, it was trading about seven, eight times earnings. Now the stock's gone up 615% since then. Uh, I talked about it in March on the show, and it's up about 75% since that time. So what do you do with the stock? Because you always ask that question. You've had a tremendous gainer here. You look at this business. What should we do with it today? Well, when we see a stock that has huge gains like this, we've got to look at the business every time with fresh eyes. Uh, What were we paying when we originally bought it and what we're paying today? Now, not the price, because the price is obviously changed over the time it's gone up, but it's the value you're getting. So three years ago, for example, what were we playing in terms of multiple of earnings? It was about seven times. So today you're paying about 11 times earnings. Again, the stock has gone up 600% over that period. So it's about 50% higher in terms of the multiple, but that does tell us that earnings have more than almost kept up with the growth in the underlying stock. So it's not vastly or grossly overvalued right now. Then what we'd like to look at when we look at Hammond Power today is look at the balance sheet from a risk perspective. In this case, when we originally bought it, it had a net debt position, so it had more debt than cash in the bank. Today, it actually has a net cash position, so more cash in the bank. It's kind of de-risked the balance sheet. Uh, that's a good sign. Finally, we look at growth perspectives. Now, we saw very significant growth three years ago. Today, we still see growth long term, but not at the rate that we've seen over the last two years. So we have to factor that into our models. Long-term, the company now makes about $550 million over the past 12 months in terms of revenues. Three-year target, $750 million, so growth. Uh, Ten By the end of the decade, about a billion in revenues is what they're looking for. So there's growth there. We saw 50% growth last year. That would average out to about 10 to 15% over the next six to seven years, so less growth. Slowing a growth, but still growth. So what we elect to do in that situation, we look at, the individual stock, we recommend our clients buy 15 to 25 stocks. If this was one of a, say, 20 stock portfolio, it could have been an 8% weighting, for example, in that overall portfolio. Now, today, it may be a 20 to 30% weighting because it's gone up so much. So we took about 25 to 50% of our original position off the table. The reason we don't take all our position off the table is because I showed you that I talked about those growth numbers three years out, And by the end of this decade, we still see growth in the business, but it would be irresponsible when you're up so much in the stock and it becomes 20 to 30% of your overall portfolio, not to de-risk your investment. You take out some of your original investment. Now we still have an overweight position in the stock for our clients overall, but we will now likely not touch that position for three to 10 years. We've taken out all our risk, all our individual in. Our initial capital that was put into the stock. We've taken that out. Now we'll ride out. We expect to be a long-term winner in Hammond Power and own it over the next decade is what we'd like to see here. But we've taken our original risk out, and that's how we look at it to take a profit in a stock that's done very well over time and still continue to participate in what we say is this electrification boom that this company will participate in. And you're still buying right now for a relatively reasonable price. So you're owning it at about 11 times earnings right now.
0: Yeah. And as you say, rebalancing the portfolio, all of a sudden, you know, your portfolio is worth a lot more, but it's sitting in one place and maybe it's more equity than you wanted. Maybe you've moved some of that into a fixed income, depending on your, you know, all other parameters like age, et cetera. But yeah, so it's a a great example, though, of uh, the approach. Now, as I say, you're doing the electrification research be available in about a month. Uh, for people, uh, you had four people going over all these hundreds of stocks with your criteria. Just one quick preview: Are you optimistic you can find at least a few more good values
3: there? I would say we are already very optimistic. We're going to find some value, uh, probably not in the most obvious names that are out yeah. in, in the financial media right now. But I, you know, I, we interviewed a company uh, this yesterday morning before this show that you know was trading about six times earnings and had 30% growth, and is completely unknown. And, you know, electrical component that is playing into that EV movement. And, uh, you know, it's a company that we're close on looking at a recommendation right now. So, and that's just one. There's several utilities that we like. There's several uh, engineering, electrical engineering companies that are trading at reasonable valuations. So uh, we're confident we're going to have some new recommendations come out of this. Again, we looked at over 400 companies. There's 50 companies that we narrow it in on. We expect two to four new recommendations to come out of this report and some names that just really aren't out there, uh, uh, you know, that don't have much coverage on them right now. Those are the names we specialize in in this area. And we, we can't wait to release that report.
0: Well, look, I'll tell everyone before I let you go, I'm going to ask you for a couple of names, not necessarily in that sphere, but names that you're following. But let me just say that, again, the report's going to be available at the end of the month. I want to give a plug to it that now, look, you can go to keystocks.com and you can sign on and get a subscription. They're described there. You will get the report for free. But if not, you want to buy it just one off. Again, go to keystocks.com and you can get the report for, I think the price is $599 there. That's correct. Yeah, yeah so I just want to let people know that if they go to the, the site, they can click on, be a subscriber, and that will be a free bonus to being a uh, survivor. You'll get this report when it's released. So. Uh, lots of incentive there on both sides of that coin. Okay, so Ryan, you know, <laughs> as we said, we know each other, so you know me. Before I let you go, can you give me at least a, a couple of names quickly that people can put on their radar, decide if it's appropriate for them and all of those other parameters, but give me a couple things that you guys are looking at.
3: Yeah, and we we talked about this meshing up uh, long-term demographic themes or long-term macro themes uh, with uh, the underlying fundamentals. And this in this case, we have a long-term demographic uh, theme here, an aging population. The first company I would recommend plays into that. It's called InMode Limited, symbol I N M D on the Nasdaq. Trades around thirty-seven dollars, just under two billion or three billion dollar market cap. What they offer is minimally invasive, non and non-invasive aesthetic and medical treatment solutions in the U.S. for surgical procedures. So you're talking about face and body contouring, medical athe- aesthetics, and women's health products. Um, we like this trend long-term in a, in a uh, aging population. Now, they are a global leader in this market. They have a track record, seven years of consistent growth, high margins, and profitable business over this period. Q1 of this year, uh, revenues were up 23%. Earnings were up 30%. We love this business because it has what we call a cash rich balance sheet, pristine balance sheet. 543 million in cash in the bank, basically no debt. So half a billion in cash in the bank and no debt. Um, they are trading at around 14 times this year's expected earnings. So the market itself, the average stock trades at around 19 to 20 times. So this, despite growing above the market rate, It trades under the market in terms of PE um, and it has that pristine balance sheet. So if there is a significant downturn, this company uh, has the balance sheet, the fortress balance sheet to survive and likely grow out of it. That's what we like to invest in. uh, As there is economic uncertainty going forward in the near term, Uh, if we do see a recession, the most publicized recession that's never occurred yet, but if we do see that. Uh, this company can survive that and then grow out of it. So that's a company that we like right now.
0: Okay, can you can you give me one more?
3: Yeah, I can give you two if you want, but if you just want one, it, it, it whatever you like, we'll give it to you here. Invella <sighs> is the next company we're going to talk about this. We talked about it, I believe, at the Outlook. Symbol is ELA on the NASDAQ. Trades around $7.30. Uh, it's a re-commerce business, $205 million market cap, so a true small cap in the U.S., Their business is based on recycling or reselling of products through two business segments. The commercial segment focuses on electronics and IT equipment, recycling those from the likes of Apple or Tesla, uh, a number of different recycling companies, Fortune 500 companies that it recycles for. Its consumer segment is a multi-channel retailer offering marketplace for pre-owned hard luxury goods and precious metals. So two areas of the business. What we like is 2020 was a strong year of growth, 30% growth in revenues to $185 million. Earnings were up over 50%, but the track record of growth over the last five years is great. Five years ago, they had $0.02 cents in earnings. Last year, they had over $0.49 cents in earnings. So 50, 52, roughly 50 on a normalized basis. Uh, strong track record of growth. Their business either maintains profitability or does slightly better in a recession. We like that there's 20 million in cash in the bank against about 14 million in debt so a net cash position now both of its markets are highly fragmented and there's areas where they can make acquisitions for growth and they have organic growth they traded about 12 and a half times earnings uh, we apply a multiple of 14 to get a fair value right now about 850 so 850 is what we like So we actually expect weaker earnings in the upcoming quarter due to tough comparables. And the company was not taxable last year, will be taxable this year. I'd like to get it under $7. If there is some weakness, that would be a point that we'd highlight under $7. We picked it up just in November of this year under $5. It's had a good move forward. If you see it under $7 again, we think it's an opportunity moving forward.
0: Okay, as you said, you promised, uh, well, very kindly, you're giving us a bonus. You only got a couple of minutes, but For sure. give me, give me the last one.
3: Yeah. Okay, VersaBank, VBNK on the TSX, trades around 990 pays a 1% dividend, $256 million market cap. Now, there's been weakness in financials this year. Uh, the underlying financials of VersaBank have not suffered at all. We'd like to take advantage of that. They're a technology-based digital Schedule One chartered bank. They offer uh, electronic branchless model. What do we like? We like the revenues and earnings profile here. Q2, revenues increased 43%, 3% sequentially to a record high. Net income was up 108% to 38 cents per share, up from 17 cents per share. Book value on the business is 13.19. We said it trades at 9.90 right now, so a discount to book. We expect it'll earn $1.23 to $1.25 in earnings this year. Uh, Just we think it's worth around 13 to 1350 That's 35% higher than its current range. They're expanding into the U.S. If they can enter this market, do what they've done in the Canadian market, they get a better spread there. It'll be growth at a reasonable price. You can take advantage of the weakness in financials, and uh, VersaBank's a good option there.
0: And, and I will say, I mean, this is the approach that you've taken at key, uh, Keystocks.com, Keystone Financial, um, for you know for a generation now and by That's the way true. if your kids if your kids think you're old they must think look daddy's talking to a dead man so that would, <laughs> that would even be more impressive <laughs> but uh it's an approach that is you look your, great we know you look great uh, but your subscribers have been served very well with this and your clients across the country uh very well with this approach and as you say it's a three- to five-year approach on these. You give the companies a chance to mature, catch up to, you know, you find stuff that's undervalued so the market can catch up with it. And uh, I look forward to the electric of electrification report, too, on that basis. Uh, and this is the whole thing is you've got a team of people looking at hundreds of stocks. And, uh, you know, many people don't have that quality. I just don't even have the time or the energy to do that kind of stuff, even if I've got some of the background for it. But that's why you look at a group like Keystone uh, just simply because uh, if they're willing to do the work, I'm willing to sign on. (laughs) So there you go. Ryan, as usual, you know how much we appreciate you finding time and sharing all the work that you guys have done there. And I'll tell people again, keystocks.com. Really looking forward to that electrification report.
3: It's great to be on once again. Great conversations, and yeah, if you want to become a client, you're going to get that five hundred and ninety nine dollar report for nothing. So we, yeah. we love to we love to we love to do research in unique areas and find these unique companies. Uh, you know, and we also offer research on every dividend stock in Canada. So Aaron does that. He couldn't be here today, but you got me. So uh, nope. at least at least we got. Um, We got some uh, good information out about a sector that really we think there's a boom coming
0: forward. Well, look forward to the next time, too. And we will get Aaron on with this, talking about the dividend-paying stocks, et cetera. But in the meantime, uh, I hope you have a terrific summer with the kids, and we'll talk to you shortly in the fall.
3: We will, for sure. We'll talk to you then. Have a great day.
0: Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I think it's fair to say that no Western country has embraced the climate change agenda to the degree Germany has. It's estimated that by 2025, it will have spent an astounding 550 billion U.S. dollars on their transition to clean energy without nuclear. So far, it's not going so well. With the shocking result that electricity prices have skyrocketed, along with being forced to import huge amounts of coal to offset the electricity loss from the closing of the nuclear plants. In fact, in the first half of 2022, coal accounted, are you ready, for 29.4% of Germany's power production, along with the accompanying increase in emissions, the opposite of what their goals were. But more than that, it was a disaster for German households who were paying on average 43% more for energy than the EU average. I mean, they're also dealing with a huge loss of manufacturing and a significant shortage in the aftermath of shedding the last nuclear plants. It actually gets worse. Recent study found if Germany had postponed the nuclear phase out and phased out coal first, instead it would have saved 1,100 lives and something like three to eight billion euro in social costs per year. But now to the shocking part. Despite letting its nuclear industry slide into neglect, in France, Nuclear power still produces 63% of its electricity, and they've recommitted to it recently. By the way, 63% versus onshore wind power, 8.5%, etc. cetera, solar, 4%. And you combine that onshore and offshore wind power, it's about 22%. Solar, about 10.5% total versus that 63% of nuclear. Here's the shocking part. As Mark Nelson points out, more than a decade after Germany's Engergewelder, that's what they called Engerwender, for, uh, forgive my pronunciation, but that's what they call that program that spent $550 billion uh, U.S. by about 2025 on this transition. What's happened? Well, German prices are higher by a factor of 10. Factor of 10 versus France, with Germany's best days are twice as bad as France's worst days. Chalk one up for nuclear power. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in now, Uh, ozbuzz.ca. Hey, Ozzy, I was thinking of you when I saw the the numbers for June because you had been warning us for ages, and it's something as as myself looks at economic stats I was certainly well aware of, but you had been warning us about be careful what you compare to. That's called the base effect. So we got our June numbers, but you said ages ago, be careful about those numbers because they're going to be comparing to a dead situation the year before. I think that's exactly what's happened.
4: Yeah, you and I talked last last year, almost every month that sales were down 40 percent, they were down 50 percent over 2021. So now you see the headlines, Fraser Valley single family homes are up 80 percent. Wow. I mean, hello, i got to run out and buy a house, but just hold on. That's on 775 sales. Last year we had only 427 sales in June. So, hey. If you look at June 2021, we had 964. So beer, yes, but champagne, not yet, right? I mean, (laughs) we're on the way, and it's, but it's not like these outlandish headlines. It's up 80%. I mean, Cuba, it's up 40%. Well, yeah, but compared to what, you know? Compared to anemic, desperate last year. I mean, you look at prices, and prices are rising, it's multiple offers. Well, Okay, in Surrey, average single-family home price was a million nine last February in 2022. In December, it was a million three, down 30%, and now it's a million five. Yes, it's up, but not to where it was before.
0: Yeah, and I think that's just a key point that people have to look a little bit further into that. And that, as I say, we're going to see more about that, what's called the base effect. What are you comparing to which month as we go through the year? Not just real estate, but, you know, wait till we stop comparing our gasoline prices to when it hit on the West Coast, 2 50 or 2 bucks across the country. All of a sudden, you're going to see inflation actually rise because that's the deflationary aspect we're going to get this when we get the June CPI and and a bit July CPI. It's going to change in the fall. But enough about that. I want to come to this other thing that was a big uh, news is that new guidelines from the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. Now, let me just start by saying. What I think they were worried about, it clearly validates, they are worried that we are about to have a huge problem as people who took out a five-year mortgage in 2020, 2021, are about to renew at much higher rates. That's going to produce problems, as if they already haven't, by the way. But I'm just saying, I found those guidelines to be an acknowledgement. we got a big problem coming down the pike.
4: Well, and it is a big problem because, you know, apparently 2023, and 25, we have a lot of mortgages come due, and uh, people have to wrestle with increases on in variable rates, ab- about uh, 50%, and on fixed rates, about 20% in the mortgage payment. That is a- bites you uh, hardly. So the interesting thing is saying this week the Financial Consumer Agency has now published a lot guidelines for the lenders to offer mortgage relief to the consumers. Now, this could save costly fees, it says, and penalties. It says mortgage holders have seen their mortgage payments rise, and that's why they recommend waiving prepayment penalties, internal fees, not charging interest on interest. Now, before we get all excited, Mike, they recommend that banks do this so this is a, a guideline but you should do you know out of the goodness of your heart it's not an it's not an action that's required by the government that you do but again i think it, it
0: emphasizes they are scared to death of this you know that this is going to be a major problem uh, you know but of course Ozzy, you know, nobody wins if there's a default on the mortgage. I mean, obviously the mortgage, you know, the guy who took out the mortgage doesn't, but either does the bank. I don't think they want to have an avalanche of new real estate holdings because people didn't make their payments. So that is some pressure on them coming up with stuff. And that's why I see, uh, you know, I I think we're about to enter a really different landscape. I mean, one of the ideas I've seen floated is, why don't we just extend the length of that mortgage? I know some people are doing that right now, but no, no, I think I'm reading some places that they think, well, why aren't you extending it for 40 years and 50 years so you can be indebted all of your adult life? That's one thing. You never really own your house. But again, that prevents the default, because if I go out 50 years, I got a lower monthly payment, you know, and that's the key here. But I I just think everything's up for grabs at this point because of it. Uh, I expect to see some huge changes coming because one. Uh, we got a rental crunch that's unbelievable coming and, again, still not acknowledged. And you talked affordability last week with building costs going way up. We got, we've been talking about, I did earlier with Rob Levy too, you know, a 1,050,000 newcomers last year, and they're estimating another million in the next two years. So 2 million new Canadians needing to live somewhere in three years, and I think it'll probably be above that. And they don't have a housing plan to get anywhere close to that so i just think we're about to see these rising interest rates the mortgage person is going to extend the government's going to change rules that's my little rant but uh, i'm telling you this is on my mind
4: well it's certainly and you have every right i mean the other thing is of course that under the umbrella of affordability they're zapping the bad homeowners. The landlords are the bad people. You know, we are the yeah. ones that if you rent something out, you had to do something wrong. That's why we'll charge you a speculation tax. We were studying a wealth tax, uh, which UBC did last year. We continuously attack the capital gain exemption. You see, people saying they're not attacking it, but if you buy a new house now, move in and sell it within a year, not only don't, do you have to pay capital gains tax, it's income. So you have to tax the whole thing. Everywhere you look, The government is there. It's Ronald Reagan who said the most scary words in the world. I am from the government and I'm here to help. It's so apropos, though. So apropos. I think this is fundamental. I mean,
0: as in our show and I I don't uh, you know, this has aged very well. I've talked for years. You blow energy policy, you blow food policy and you blow housing. You're going to get a revolution. Now uh, for me, you want to add a little sauce to it, have a problem with your pensions. So this is the sauce that's getting served up around the Western world right now. And uh, the housing I think is going to come to the forefront. I don't see near enough talk about, uh, I mean we clearly, the government talks about affordability and nothing even comes close to dealing with two million newcomers over three years. I mean, it's that simple. The demand is getting built in either for rental or for regular housing and it's already a problem, so what is it going to look like in three years? And the government will respond. They'll see an opportunity for political advantage. They never mentioned they may have been part of the problem, but uh, I I just think we're going to get a dramatic shift.
4: Yeah, it certainly is an exciting world that we're living in. Never mind all the permits you have to get through with the city, all the new taxes from the provinces and and, uh, federally, of course, we also have an underused home tax that nobody understands. Anyways, uh, you're very cheerful today, Mike. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm glad
0: that we're bringing these things forward because it impacts people's lives in a really profound way. And so, uh, yeah, I'm glad to be. And and I guess I just saying I, I this is just personal. I don't like the BS that surrounds all of this. Uh, you know, that we care about affordability. And I go, well, I'll give you 10 things you're doing. It just, before I uh, go, this is something that was out in the West Coast, out in Vancouver this past week. And, you know, it's a great thing to bring to the public's attention. We had somebody who's doing a renovation on a simple bathroom. And he said, let me show you what I've got to go through, including, uh, you know, the cost something like $20,000 just to comply in the years it takes. I thought that was a great example of bringing home that government is not there to help.
4: Yeah, no question about it, and maybe we should do a totally new show on it because the variety of plumbing inspection, electrical inspection, framing inspection, insulation inspection, building permits, every single one, you need a survey, and so on and so on and so on. And I think the cheapest to get away with with a powder room is $10,000. You haven't put up any kind of work yet. This is just permits.
0: Yeah, we will. We'll do on that because people have to become aware of these subjects. We say we care about housing and I think we're ignoring way too much on this file. Not thanks to you though, Ozzy. You're doing a great job bringing it forward and that's why I invite people to go to ozbuzz.ca ozbuzz.ca. You can find Ozzy. Subscribe to the free newsletter. Take advantage of it. Lots of great stuff there. Ozzy, you go out and have a terrific week.
4: Thank you very much, Mike. And my wife and I... uh... We had a discussion and, uh, you know, I I, I said to her a little snarly, I said, why do men like intelligent women? And she looks at me, she says, because opposites attract.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh, I can think my my wife's going to hear that and nod her head. There you go. Ozzy, have a great week. Thanks, and you too. Let's go live to the trading desk. i got Victor Adair with me. Vic, you look well-rested after a shortened week, but it didn't mean there wasn't stuff happening. And I want to come first to the jobs report because, you know, a lot of people have been saying that, hey, whether what happens in interest rates will have something or a lot to do with what the employment situation is. So let's talk start quickly with the jobs.
5: Yeah, I think that the way people look at that is that the Fed is very sensitive to employment. They they would like there to be less jobs on offer, you know, but they don't want people to lose jobs. So they want to change that ratio. Now, it used to be we had one employment report and that came out on the first Friday of every month. You know, it seems this week we had about 17 employment reports all from the United States. I'm exaggerating. But on Thursday, we had ADP, the the private company that, you know, writes everybody's paycheck. I mean, they came out with a shockingly strong market. And then the follow up, the government number on Friday was sort of Uh, so-so. Here's how the market took it. The, The interest rates were rising this week. As uh, on the anticipation that the the, the banks, the central banks will boost rates because employment is strong. But toward the end of the week, uh, we had the U.S. dollar weakening relative to virtually all other currencies, which might say, you know, all other things being equal, that maybe they're getting close to the end of raising interest rates.
0: But, but your point's well taken. If it's not confusing enough, we get two sets of data, you know, <laughs> come on. And they don't say the same thing. It would be easier if they would say the same thing. But, again, that, that starts rippling through the bond market, ripples through the short-term interest rates that people look at, certainly seem to have an impact on the stock market. Uh, I guess it was on Thursday. You know, the list goes on. But let me just – You know, the big question people want to ask is, what do you think it means for interest rates? Are we going to indeed get that bump in interest rates by both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve? Yes. Okay, yeah. thank you. Victor <laughs> here, ladies and gentlemen. No,
5: no I, this Wednesday, the Bank of Canada is going to bump uh, another 25 basis points. It would be shocking if they didn't, I think. Uh, and the Fed is at the end of the month, July the 26th is the date, and, and they'll likely do that. We had two-year yields in both Canada and the United States move to, call it 15, 16-year highs this week. Uh, I, I know we have a lot of... Actually, we have a record amount of uh, credit card debt and the interest rates on credit cards are, of course, at astonishingly all time highs. So, yeah, the, the, there is in some ways some impact on people and on the economy from rising interest rates. It, it, you could even say, actually, Mike, that as much as a central bank is raising interest rates to try to get inflation down,
0: rising interest rates are inflationary. Yeah, it certainly increases people cost of living if we're talking mortgages, as our last couple of CPI reports indicated. But uh, the other side is that, uh, you know, for people who are lucky to be on the savings side, you know, they own bonds or, you know, that are bank accounts, money market stuff. They've got more money in their pockets to spend. So on both of those fronts, it uh, certainly creates a higher cost of living through infl- for the mortgages. And then that money potentially pushes prices of things up.
5: And no wonder we're seeing strikes uh, and, and probably more to come. Uh, as pe- Actually, the rising interest rates creates inequality. You're, you were just referencing that people that have money are going to benefit from higher interest rates. People that don't have a rising mortgage and are trying to keep up with the rising costs are being hurt by uh, rising interest rates. I absolutely believe the central bankers know that. They're not trying to be the biggest dummy bully on the block. It's just that seems from their point of view, the only thing they can do is to raise interest rates and, and, you know, hold their breath while the consequences uh, ripple through the economy.
0: Well, of course, one of the themes on this show has been they're caught between a rock and a hard place. There were no easy choices left, and there won't be going forward. I mean, the rising interest rates also put pressure pressure on sovereign debt, as an example, or anyone else who's been a debtor, as we're talking about with individual mortgages. But at the same time, there's fallout from that. I mean, yeah, I don't think they're sort of avoiding the easy way in any any shape or form. There just isn't one. But I, I want to come back to what you said about, I mean, strikes are also big in the news with the B.C., 7,400 B.C. port workers uh, hearing in the States. I mean, it's a huge number out of UPS looking to go on strike. And, and, you know, think of the ripple throughout the economy with this stuff. I mean, they say $800 million a day was passing through, uh, you know, the port of Vancouver, for example. Well, obviously, that impacts all sorts of businesses.
5: Yeah, uh, Canadian exports were down last month. Uh, you can imagine they're going to be down even more this month with uh, ports closed so that we can't export on, on the West Coast side here. There, there really is these tug of wars all across markets. You know, we just talked about interest rates, uh, rising interest rates, good for some people, not good for others. I mean, really, around the world, manufacturing is already in a recession. But the service economy seems to be going along, you know, just fine. Uh, people and businesses are having trouble accessing credit. And if they can get credit, you know, it's at a higher rate. We certainly everybody's sensitive to we've got commercial real estate coming up for a lot of refinancing, you know, certainly uh, later this year, but m- more so into next year. Uh, are the lenders going to say, oh, sure, we'll renew your, your mortgage, or are they going to say, you know, we're not interested? So yeah. There's a lot of tug of wars. I think this is a, a great time for people to really be sensitive to their, their time frame when they're trying to make an evaluation
0: of, of what they should be doing. Yeah, I, I'm glad you made that point because I think that's a key. I was talking to Ryan er, Ryan Irvine earlier and saying that we talk about that all the time, but it's such a key going forward. You know, I, I'll put the bigger context on this. You know, you think of all of these things that we're dealing with that you're looking at every day, and I'm saying it's part of a bigger picture. People have to, in my opinion, appreciate we're in a period of historic change. We're in a period of dealing with record amounts of debt, which always has implications, as I say, uh, with the amount of money. Uh, from uh, deficit spending, from monetary policy chasing fewer goods created disinflation. And back to your point about the central banks, yeah, they only have one t- – well, they have a couple of tools, but they're dealing really with the demand side with those tools. You know, raise my interest rates so I don't borrow, when in fact one of the big parts of the problem was the supply side. So raising interest rates does not solve our supply problem. It makes it worse. And that's just an illustration of, I think, what we're dealing with. And I just don't see any sign that the period we're in is going to uh, – uh, you know sort of slow down or calm down over the next few years in fact i think it's going to intensify
5: you know the way i i um, the way i look at it i guess with my trading is I, I i could spend any day i could tell you any day this week i have watched let's say two different interviews and very clever well-informed experienced people and they draw absolutely opposite conclusions so i'm thinking if i take a position in the market I've got a brainwave, I've done my homework, whatever. I, I have to be prepared that I'm wrong on that. I have to know that, I, if, you know, what I'm trying to do here is make money, not lose money by holding on to a, a wrong idea. So I, I don't have a lot of conviction a lot of the time, especially, I guess, when I look at like this week, this week past, I've been, I still have been kind of bullish on the U.S. dollar. And it seemed to me that there's a lot of things point to a U.S. dollar going higher. But the market didn't agree with me this week, so I took small losses, tried to move the sidelines, clear my head,
0: and have another look at it. That, by, by the way, that disqualifies you from politics. They never considered <laughs> that they could be wrong. They think they're infallible. They, they never talk about unintended consequences, as I started the show talking about. But that's exactly why, because in markets, you pay a price. That's a harsh mistress and a good teacher. And you've learned a heck of a lot, and I appreciate you sharing it with us, Vic. And people can get more by going to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, have a terrific week.
5: Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you.
0: Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Arguably the biggest story in the country deals with the ongoing revelations into the degree of penetration of the Chinese Communist Party into Canada. Despite years of warnings, by the way, from CSIS, the Canadian military, top-notch investigative work by journalists like Sam Cooper and Terry Glavin, and a handful of others, the evidence and warnings, are you ready for this, were ignored, including CSIS reports of interference in the federal elections of 219-221. But given the nonchalant attitude, I guess, toward the infiltration of the acknowledged biggest human rights abuser on the planet of so many elites in politics, academia, and business, maybe it's not a surprise that it extended to Elections Canada. This week, Elections Canada acknowledged that it's received 116 complaints of foreign interference in the last two federal elections. But what did they do with them? Well, they were dismissed. Ostensibly, because... They were too hard to investigate and prosecute, too hard in terms of manpower and time. While the election commissioner states that all complaints were followed up, not a single prosecution was attempted. You know what that reminds me of? part of this goofy, and I'm going back a bit, though. It's eerily similar to the government's rejection of calls to investigate fraud claims of pandemic money, which, by the way, they were getting within two weeks of the launch of the CERB program, while the CRA was told not to investigate. Two years later, CRA admitted it hadn't investigated a single case still. It may explain why 9 million Canadians claim CERB checks, despite the fact that even at the height of the unemployment peak during the pandemic, there was only 1.5 million unemployed. So 9 million checks, 1.5 million unemployed, clearly something's wrong. As, a, as the pandemic wore on, though, efforts to determine eligibility didn't make any progress, which has limited the government's ability to make the likelihood of any recovery of misplaced funds uh, unlikely, as I say. Ultimately, the Auditor General last December, by the way, reported that $4.6 billion in COVID financial aid went to ineligible recipients. <laughs> but she also recommended a further investigation of $27.4 billion in payments to individuals and employees, employers, rather. So far, much like Elections Canada, the CRA has been reluctant to go after the overpayments or fraudulent payouts stated in quotes. It would be not cost-effective. Too much? I'll tell you, my guess is that a lot more work needs to be done by Elections Canada and the CRA in communicating with us, the public, taxpayers, why it's in Canadians' best interest to not follow up on foreign interference and potential fraud. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. And I just want to remind you, by the way, as I do, uh, again, I'm just astounded on a weekly basis, daily basis, how much information that should be on the news, should be headlines, don't make it there. I appreciate they're focusing a lot on local stuff, but I'll tell you, when you think about it, the dynamics of the world come from international things, whether it is a COVID or whether it is, you know, Chinese infiltration. I mean, the list is a long one. Uh, All commodity prices are set internationally. So I think it's important to figure out what's going on. To do that, I invite you to go to Money Talks tweets and go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. Tell a friend about it. The more informed we are, the better we are. But also go to mikesmoneytalks.ca because there you can sign up for the free email blast. Every week we send out three emails, but with little bits of information, et cetera, quotes. I think you're going to find it valuable. We get great feedback from that. I hope you join us. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have a terrific week.